Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. I'm so excited about this one. I sound a little nervous during this interview because I'm interviewing my own personal hero, Seth Godin. If you already know who Seth is, then you'll understand why this was such a big deal for me. Um, He's someone that I discovered quite a few years ago, actually, you know, one of my first ever jobs and just really inspired me to put my work out there. And he's just responsible for a lot of decisions I've made, which he wouldn't have known. But um, yeah, a massive influence on what I do. So Seth Godin, for those of you that don't know him, he is the author of 18 books that have been bestsellers around the world. 18. And they've been translated into over 35 languages. He writes about spreading ideas, marketing, change, leadership. Some of his most well-known books are called Lynchpin, Tribes and Purple Cow. You might have heard of them. I actually mentioned the book Purple Cow a few times in this podcast. It's a book that really inspired me all about standing out and being remarkable. His blog is one of the most popular blogs in the world. You can actually find his blog by simply typing Seth into Google. That's how popular it is. And Seth is really well known in the publishing industry. One of the reasons is because he launched a series of four books via Kickstarter. And this campaign actually reached its goal in three hours. It ended up becoming one of the most successful crowdfunding book project pretty much ever his newest book which is out now is called what to do when it's your turn and it's already a bestseller and he sold it in a really interesting way if you wanted to google that to find out more he doesn't really market his books in the most sort of conventional mainstream way and it's it's really inspiring especially as they do so well in this episode we talk about personal branding fear education making decisions and teaching yourself i really hope you enjoy this episode i loved it and please let me know your thoughts once you've listened to it and what bits stood out for you here it is let's rock and roll so hi Seth hi Emma (laughs) this is quite surreal for me I've been a fan of yours for so many years now I uh, I remember my first presentation I did I think about seven years ago I mentioned um, the purple cow wow thanks thank you so much that was my gateway drug into the world of um, Seth Godin I'm so happy that you agreed to come on. I have a lot of younger listeners um, of this podcast and some of them are either coming out of university or they're kind of hunting for their first or second job and really they're at the very beginning. And I love the work that you do around sort of uh, putting your own message out there into the world using your connection that you have online. And I just wondered, how do you think people can prepare themselves for the world we live in now that they might not? be taught at school, for example? Well, almost everything you're taught in school is not preparing you for the world we live in now and most certainly will not prepare you for the world we are about to live in. Uh, Just to tick off a few things. Number one, anything worth memorizing is worth looking up because we now live in an era where anything you need to know you can look up. Number two, uh, the ability to do what you are told is dramatically overrated Anything that I can write down, I can find cheaper than you, someone cheaper than you to do it. And then the third thing is uh, being taught to be a follower. You are entering a world that has a shortage of leaders, not a shortage of followers. That we've given a microphone to anyone who wants one, a video camera to anyone who wants one. And the question is, are you a consumer or a producer? Because if you're a consumer, someone's going to take advantage of you. And with this analogy that I absolutely love of yours about um, the analogy of the bowling lane and how it's always open and you kind of get to practice as many times as you want, be be it privately or publicly, you seem to have this amazing 
motivation and momentum to keep going. And I know there's this, there's this phrase about sort of like staying in your own lane and, and really just dedicating yourself to what you want to do. Where does your sort of, the, the motivation come? Like you've had 18 bestsellers. It's, it's an incredible momentum that you've got. So let me take them apart <laughs> bit by bit. Uh, the first one is, yes, unlimited bowling is a great concept. We're used to having to pay for every game we bowl. Uh, we're used to having to pay for every bowl of pasta or every pint at the pub. Uh, but the fact is that the internet is filled with unlimited bowling opportunities. It doesn't cost anything to try one more idea. It doesn't cost anything to connect with one more person. There are all these opportunities to hone our craft without it all falling apart. And it's easy to brainwash ourselves into believing that we have to be perfect. But we don't. We merely have to be generous and interesting. Uh, in terms of what keeps me going, you know, I'm a teacher, and I think if someone had offered me the right job 20 years ago at a university, no one would have ever heard of me because I just want to help people see things. It turns out, though, that books and then the Internet are a great platform, if you're an impresario, to weave together a chance to have a student body, in my case, a million people, who I'm so privileged to be able to narrate for and teach. And that's what I do. That shouldn't be what you do, because I'm already doing it. But what it is, is an example for people that there isn't a placement office anymore. There isn't this spot you have to go to get a gig. You have to make a gig. That's how you make something happen. And it feels like this sort of idea that everyone is a media company was that, you know, you said that years and years and years ago. Do you think it's now more important than ever? Because I feel like some people are getting a little bit, they don't believe, I think, that the personal brand thing is still, I think people are so bored of the term that they almost turn their back on it. But do you agree it's still so important? Well, let's be uh, clear about a couple of things. First of all, everyone has a personal brand, whether they want one or not. That when you sent me a note saying, do you want to be on my podcast? I looked and in three clicks, I knew who you were. You have a personal brand. I don't know you. I don't really know who you are. The same way I don't really know what's in Coca-Cola. But I have a, an image of it in my mind. But the second thing that's way more important to understand is you're not going to be famous, famous. And it turns out I'm not even famous, famous. Almost no one knows who I am. What you need to be is famous to the family, famous to a small group of people, famous to a circle of 10 or 100 or 1,000 people who will trust you. That is where your personal brand will really shine. That if, I, if you work in a company with 45 people and I need to pick two people to work on a new project, why will I pick you? If you are part of 100 people who are applying for an interesting fellowship, why will I pick you? If you are a freelancer looking for copywriting work, why will I pick you? That's the kind of personal brand that we have no choice but to build. Yeah, and and, and I guess the fact that there is no finish line of, oh, I'll just tick this off and then I'm sort of done, which I guess is back to kind of how amazing your career has been and how much you've done, it feels like it's something that you need to carry on doing for that family and that community that you've created. Right. And, you know, I don't have a job. My kids have proudly pointed out that I'm unemployed and they have done so for 20 years. And I couldn't be happier with that. I don't do this because I have to. I don't do this because someone tells me to. I do this because I think it's a life worth living. Yeah. And 
what a shame for somebody to spend 50 or 70 years following the boss's instructions because they think they have no choice. Yeah, I love that. I can't remember what YouTube clip it was, but one of them about people feeling like their boss won't let them do stuff because I've been in that situation because sometimes it's hard when you're confined to an office to actually do what you want to do. Yeah, and it's also a great excuse too. Um, You can write a book in your spare time and in fact, maybe you should because it will give you the freedom to write the book you need to write, not the one that's easy to write. You can't really make a living writing books. You can start down the road to making a living writing books. But for every Stephen King uh, or J.K. Rowling, there are 10,000 writers who don't make a living at it. The point is you can make a difference doing it, and making a difference is even better than making a living. Mm. I really love as well all of the, you know, the things that you say around building trust over building followers, because I do feel like we are kind of there's like a bit of an epidemic at the moment, especially with the younger, younger people, teenagers who have got the keys to Instagram and followers is seems to be a very important part of their self-worth, which I find a little bit scary. And I'm not a parent, but um, this kind of the message that you, you give out as well about how, you know, there's no such thing as an overnight success and instant recognition isn't isn't the point. Do you think that's kind of a little bit scary that the Internet has turned into a bit of a numbers game? Well, it's only a numbers game if you let it be. Yeah. Uh, you know, when was the last time we heard from Cy, the guy who did the most popular <laughs> movie video of all time? I hope he's having a good life. I really do. 2.5 billion views. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on average, half the people on the planet spent a few minutes with him, which is unbelievable. But it's not a career. And you don't need to be an overnight success. The fact is, I've written 7000 blog posts, and not one of them has won the internet, that it's really great. If I get 4000 Facebook likes, that's unbelievable. But there are people who get 300,000 Facebook likes once a decade. I'm not interested in that. I'm just showing up and showing up and showing up because it doesn't make sense to randomly touch a random stranger. It makes sense to be a meaningful specific to put your chips down in a place and stand for something and do it again and again and again. That's how you make change happen. Yeah, I totally agree. I I also wanted to ask you about, because on that note of kind of keeping going and really having to sort of be consistent and be regular and do it your way and carry on. It seems that there is quite a bit of this fear around burning out and being exhausted, especially working for yourself. Sometimes it's, you know, you don't have anyone telling you to stop working. Do you, how do you have time out? Do you, cause I, I've, I've seen lots of Ted talks on, you know, have a year off every seven years and, or, you know, these sorts of things. But is there any tactics that you have to make sure that you can carry on going? Well, you know, the first thing I'm going to highlight is the difference between busy and important. That it's super easy to be busy all day. That there's one more uh, media channel to check. There's one more bunch of clicks to click. And then you start all over again. That these cycles of busy feel worthwhile. But in fact, what people respond to is when we do something that's dangerous and generous. What they respond to is when we do something that frightens us. That doesn't take a lot of time. That merely takes a lot of guts. Mm. And I don't work nearly as many hours as people think I do because I don't go to meetings, I don't watch television, and I try really hard to not do tasks that could be done by somebody else or that could 
avoid being done at all. And if you can find it within you to do that kind of work, then I don't think you end up with the same sort of burnout. The burnout that hangs around the corner for me is the burnout that comes from the adrenal gland getting exhausted and not being ready to deal with the fear again. And that work is emotional labor and emotional labor is what we're actually getting paid for. I really look up to, I mean, there's a lot of people like, you know, for example, someone like Liz Gilbert, who I, who I interviewed for this, she's really good at sort of saying, I'm really busy. You know, she says no a lot. And I know that very successful people say no a lot. And I wondered, when did, when did you first realize I can set these boundaries? Do you have to wait for a certain point in your career where you feel like you feel confident that you can start saying no? Or did you do it before then? Well, the glib answer is I started doing it after Liz Gilbert said no to me, but that's not true. <laughs> I, I adore Liz Gilbert. I think she's a genius and a generous one. For me, I think the turning point came early in my career as a book packager. Uh, it was a struggle for a really long time. I got rejected a lot, just barely making a living. And I had one employee and she was dating a guy named Aaron Sorkin. And Aaron wrote the screenplay for A Few Good Men on my Macintosh in my attic. And then something happened that never happens to anyone ever, which is he became an overnight success. <laughs> and he got offered uh, the chance to bring A Few Good Men to Broadway. And he said, Seth, will you produce it? And I said, no. And I have never regretted that. But once you say no to something that turns out to be a big thing, and you don't burst into flames or die as a result, you realize that saying no is actually not that hard. And you have to protect your work and you have to protect your mission because if you're always saying yes to a shiny object, your mission comes in second. And it was uh, less gutsy than it seems because he wasn't the Aaron Sorkin and it <laughs> wasn't a success yet. But it was still gutsy because it was fresh and exciting and maybe it was going to work. But instead, I made the commitment that I have a plan and a goal. And every once in a while, I will get distracted. And every once in a while, I will make a huge mistake, like thinking the World Wide Web isn't going to work. Um, but in general, we need to say, no, I'm not going to go on Twitter. Or, no, I'm not going to speak at your conference. Or, no, I'm sorry, I don't do consulting. And... I've been saying I don't do consulting since the first time someone offered me 50 bucks. And now if you offer me 500,000 bucks, I'm still going to say the same thing. Because once I say yes, once, then I don't know what I stand for anymore. And I have to reconsider everything. And is it always, is it a gut instinct? Like, do you, is it just something that you in seconds can know whether you want to say yes or no to something? Well, the late Zig Ziglar, who was a friend and teacher to me, uh, did a series on goal setting. And one of the outputs of it was this goal planner, which is still um, for sale online. The goal planner made a huge difference in my life. And the short version is you come up with uh, emotional, spiritual, physical, and professional goals, things that you want to be, do, or have. You figure out who can help you reach those goals and why you want to reach them. And then you figure out what you need to do every single day to move forward toward those goals. And if somebody offers you something that doesn't move you toward those goals, you need to either think about whether you want to restate your goals or say no. Mm. And that compass is way more valuable than a map. Yeah. 
I found it amazing one of those statistics that you said recently about online courses and how the drop-off rate is so high and um, I was looking at obviously the course that you run which looks incredible the old MBA and I wondered um, how that came about because that is that that's quite a recent project is it the last few years yeah we've been doing it for about a year and a half um, I looked at online courses I run some on Udemy and I'm very proud of them and they work but it's true that a massive online course, a free one with 100,000 people in it, tends to have a dropout rate of 97%. So only three people out of 100 finish one of those. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because learning is hard. Learning is not just bathing in information. It's about changing your mind. It's about leaning into something and emotionally getting involved and changing. And so I said, what would happen if I built a course that was optimized to change people, not optimized to make money. And the idea is that there are some people, not many, but some, who want to learn to see, to make better decisions, to reimagine how they are in the world, to be able to uh, explore new ideas and get other people to follow them. And so the Alt-MBA is a 30-day workshop. It's three hours a day, takes place around the world with live coaches. It's expensive. Uh, it's engaging and people ship work all the time. There's no videos, there's no secret information. And we have a 97% completion rate, wow. meaning only three people out of 100 drop out. It's the opposite of an online course. And the reason is simple, because the people who take it are enrolled in going where we are going. They're not shopping around, they're committed. And engagement changes everything. Because when you are surrounded by people who are engaged in the journey, you push each other, and that's how change happens. Are you are you quite self-taught yourself with um with all of your kind of projects and intuition? Has it always been something that, or have you had some amazing teachers in the past? Oh, it's both. Um, you know, I think most teaching is self-teaching, and we get information from lots of places. But it's about looking in the mirror and saying, "Well, am I ready to put on this hat that makes me think differently?" because I don't have to put the hat on, but I can. So you could sit in a calculus class or an evolutionary biology class with an amazing teacher, and two-thirds of the people aren't going to change because they're not ready to see the world differently. They're not emotionally committed in where they want to go. So I've been loud and proud about you know, my parents, about Jay Levinson, Tom Peters, Zig Ziglar, about... Uh, friends, people like Liz Gilbert and, and Cheryl Sandberg, who have helped me see the world differently. And after someone turns on the light, it's up to you to say, yeah, I'm running with that. I mean, is there any um, advice? Because I feel like I feel like I'm quite a doer. And I, you know, I taught myself how to do this podcast. Like, I don't know anything about microphones. I, you know, it t took me ages even how to work out how to record this conversation on Skype. But you kind of get there on YouTube tutorials and dig around. But I wonder, do you have any advice for people who just naturally kind of find it really, really hard to put themselves out there, whether it's just writing a blog post or, you know, because I, I do know people who can't necessarily get it out there very easily. Wow, it sounds like work, <laughs> right? First of all, I think you're selling yourself a little short. The hard part of making a podcast isn't figuring out how to use a microphone, <laughs> right? The hard part of making a podcast is to be as generous as you are and showing up and showing up and showing up long before it starts to pay off and contributing to a conversation that people want to hear. That's the hard part. 
put setting up a microphone is easy. You just, you know, hire someone on Fiverr for $10. They'll set up a microphone for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing about the blog post is it may be that you're asking me to give people reassurance. And I refuse to do that. <laughs> uh, reassurance is overrated because you can never get enough of it. If you seek reassurance, whatever reassurance you get will wear off really fast, faster than showering. Um, That's good advice. You know, but what I can tell you is, uh, yeah, it's work. That's what emotional labor looks like. Your grandfather dug ditches for a living. You don't have to do that. Your great-grandfather had to forge outdoors in the winter for berries. You don't have to do that. You get to make a blog post. And it's work. So treat it like work. And if you want to, begin by posting your blog posts anonymously. And after you've done 30 of them and nothing bad happens to you, then go ahead and put your name on it and see what happens. Because some, something that really spoke to me, um, something that you said that genuinely changed my confidence levels um, was something that you spoke about, uh, the term like false fear and this fear that comes from, you know, the worst case scenario and the worst case scenario is not even that bad at all. And it made me really sort of think about what I was afraid of, because when I weighed it up, even if it was doing a talk and it going wrong, it's fine, not, you know, that sort of thing. How, how did you kind of get to that place where you could understand that fear actually, sometimes it isn't necessarily real? You know, I learned a, a good lesson from my friend John Dale. People pay money to go on roller coasters. And those same people, when they're on an airplane and turbulence hits, freak out and use their entire force of will to keep the plane aloft. Lucky for everyone else on the plane that you were there to do that, to will the plane to keep flying. The thing is, planes don't crash because of turbulence. And when they hit, if you treat it like a roller coaster, a free ride on a roller coaster, you could actually have a good time. Well, the same thing's true with all of the fear that we're imagining about being in the world, publishing our work, building something. No one ever died from that. We just are hardwired to freak out. Mm -hmm. And you can indulge the freak out if you wish, or you can say, wait, this is part of the deal. This is what I signed up for. What's next? Yeah. I guess what we were talking about before about standing out and being different, um, there is a lot going on out there at the moment with so, you know blogs or whatever it might be because everyone has a blog now some some blogs are quite similar how important do you think it is to be to be different do you think that it's harder now to be different because I think of you as someone who there really is only one Seth Godin like it's just you know that you stand out so much in your field and I just wondered whether you think now now that I think one in two people have a blog or something I read the other day um do you think it's just as important to be that purple cow, even even more so? Well, one or two people started a blog. That doesn't mean they have one. Mm. Uh, the number of people in my reader, RSS reader, who used to blog every day and I haven't heard from in a long time is very large. It's easy to have it fade away. I think it's a mistake, though, to fall into the trap of differentiation, of saying... Uh, how am I different? It makes more sense to say, how can I be trusted? Mm. And the way to be trusted is not to say, I'm the same as everybody else. Everybody else is using emojis, I'm going to use emojis. Everyone else is running a snap, I'm going to run a snap. If you are the same as everyone else, 
you're not more likely to be trusted. You're just more likely to be invisible. That writing my blog is a wonderful privilege for me, but it also is me. This is what I sound like. I talk in complete sentences. I'm not faking it. That is what you ought to be doing on your blog, sounding like you, see, talking about what you see, talking about your experiences, because if someone can come to know you and your point of view in a generous way, they're more likely to trust you. And if they're more likely to trust you, they're more likely to engage with you. And that's the point. So you're right. Don't try to be the next Seth Godin because there already is a Seth Godin. It's me. <laughs> try to be the next you because that's what everyone's waiting for. Yeah. And that's a, I guess that's a big reminder about, you know, this com comparing yourself to other people online. It's, it really is kind of, yeah, strangely pointless, but quite um, tempting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to, to put one thing in here, there are tons of business authors who sell more books than I do. And there are tons of bloggers uh, who have more people reading any given blog post than I do. There are people on Medium who have five times more readers than I do. That's all fine with me. I'm not keeping track of that. It's not my job to win. It's my job to contribute. Mm. Oh, thank you so much. I just wanted to ask you one final question, which sure. was uh, what, what's 2017 kind of looking like for you? What are you excited about? I, I know that you, you always have different things on the go. I just wondered what your priority is this year. I know that you were saying that you're not necessarily writing another book anytime soon. And well, the Alt-MBA is something that has become an institution. More than a 1,000 people have been through it. So we keep working on that. The team's growing a little bit. Um, and then I'm working on some new uh, online education stuff that uh, I think will appeal to people. But mostly my focus has been, uh, in the last few months, digging deeper and thinking harder about how each person can contribute regardless of what's happening in the environment around us. Mm -hmm. That now more than ever, particularly for people of your generation, we have to own our voices and speak up and act as if to make a difference because we can't count on someone else to do it for us. Amazing, God, that's so needed. Um, that was so hard to ask you some questions in half an hour, but um, it was a challenge. Oh, don't worry, Amber, you did a great job, Emma, don't worry. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. And I hope everything goes well for you. It's good to meet you.